when we fail to recognize the multidimensionality of humans and we don't wrap that into our culture, then I think we're compromising the performance of everyone in the organization and the organization itself. The human experience is the greatest project any of us will undertake, yet it's often the one we spend the least amount of time working on. My name is Matt Johnston. I'm a self-professed personal development junkie, a retired pro golfer, and I now work for an organization that provides employee and health benefits to hundreds of thousands of people. It should be common sense to realize that what happens at work is what people bring home and what happens at home comes to them to work, but that's too often ignored. That's why each week I hope to uncover a little more around what it means to be a human working and living in the 21st century. We'll be learning from experts, having conversations and getting insights into all those things that fall at the intersection of life and work emotional and physical health, skills and money, all of the relationships we navigate each day, and of course, the purpose and meaning we all desire. This is The Human Assignment. Welcome back or welcome to The Human Assignment podcast. Today is a, is a really fun episode. I'm here with Donna Harris, who is my uh, partner, co-founder in uh, in the Human Assignment, is is leading this startup project that we're working on, and uh, we have some some great interviews that uh, that we've been now co-recording, and thought might be fun to start off before we release those. Do uh, do an interview uh, with Donna, who's been on the podcast before with our good friend and and Donna's partner that she's done a ton of work with, Dr. Adrian Leslie Toogood. Um, fantastic episode that uh, that was right at the start of COVID-19. So it talks a little bit about uh, Donna's background, but more of the work that she's done. So today I thought it was a great opportunity to chat a little bit about Donna's background, the work that she does. Uh, there's a lot that you can, that, uh, that I learn from Donna every day, but her path has, uh, you know, really led her into the work that we're trying to do here at the human assignment, the, uh, holistic supports for people, uh, in their journey, accessible supports. So really excited to have Donna here. Uh, Donna and I met in, in 2017, I, I moved back to, to Winnipeg, Canada, and uh, Donna just finished a master's degree. That had sort of led her into uh, work on the corporate side. She had spent uh, her career in athletics um, as an athlete, as a coach, in uh, program development, a lot of the things that she's done has uh, that that a lot of her work has has had significant impacts on our national program development over the years, and uh, her thesis project, which we'll 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 dig into a little bit, she spoke about in a previous episode, was uh, focused on coaches and some of the best coaches in Canada, and uh, the the role of passion in in their lives, and and sort of showed the the double edged sword of passion, and sort of spoke to the the idea the importance of self self-care for those that are in positions of, uh, of leadership um, and caring for others, which uh, connected us to the, to the work that I'm, that I was, that I'm trying to do in, in the, in the corporate space and the wellness space. So we've been going back and forth for years, uh, supporting each other in, in what we're doing and finally found, uh, found places to, to start collaborating and have been uh, working together um, on, on what you're starting to see today and uh, have a number of exciting projects in the works. So Donna Harris, thrilled to have you here. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I'm well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. 
So this is this is a, a rare conversation for us right now because your internet is uh, uh, good enough that uh, you don't have to be stealing from the back seat of your your truck uh, in your best friend's driveway. You're you're actually indoors with good Wi-Fi today. So I, yes, yeah, it's a it's an exciting day. I'm in her in my best friend's basement actually. So uh, typically, I uh, depending on what level of restrictions we're at for COVID um, and uh, and what's going on in her family. I've typically been in the backseat of my F-150 from her driveway. I've recorded se several webinars from that location and actually plugged in my computer to charge my laptop from the side of her house also. But today it is, um, the wind chill makes it uh, below minus 40. <laughs> it's like minus 26 outside and it was just too cold. And um, my children attend daycare here, so we're in her bubble. So I am in her basement and uh, very happy to be warm um, and uh, warm and not, not in the backseat of my truck. We are obviously, we're recording here in, in February, 2021 mm -hmm. in the middle of the, uh, the pandemic, of course. And um, uh, how old are your kids, Donna? Uh, ten and eight, ten two and girls. Eight. Ten yeah. and eight. Yeah. You and uh, and your and your husband Kyle, you are you're in it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, we are absolutely deep in the keeping kids busy and keeping ourselves sane in the midst of a pandemic every day. <laughs> well, what I want to do today, Donna, is just is dig into talk a little bit about your your story, your path, and some of the lessons that that, that you've learned along your way. And um, and how that sort of brings you full circle to um, to this this work you're you're doing uh, that uh, we we do together, uh, and uh, certainly some of the projects that that you've worked on that we're trying to amplify through this uh, through the human assignment uh, the brand. But I thought where we'd start is with your your background in sport. You have an incredible resume and, uh, and experience and track re record through sport. And you started, um, you started as an athlete. I did. Yep, absolutely. I was, uh, um, a multi-sport athlete. I loved just being active as a kid and, um, turned out that, uh, I could run pretty quickly. So, um, was really drawn to track and field. So I was a sprinter and I, had the I'm grateful I had the opportunity to be part of a varsity program at university. So I competed for the University of Manitoba for four years and um, was fortunate enough to compete at nationals every year, uh, three times or two times just as a relay athlete and then another couple of times as both an individual athlete and a relay athlete. Uh, to qualify for nationals, you had to be top 12 in the country. So it took me a little bit of time as an individual to get there, but uh, that was a really great experience for me being part of that team and um, I really enjoy the training environment and uh, the sort of the, I'm not going to say absolutely elite high performance environment because I've also been around Olympians and so I understand the continuum there that exists but certainly spent upwards of 20 to 25 hours a week training so I really enjoyed that and uh, learned a lot and um, really enjoyed being an athlete. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in recreation studies, so sport management, and I was fortunate after university was done, I was able to work in sport right away and uh, started at the uh, provincial level working at uh, uh, swimming in British Columbia and then at uh, coaching Manitoba here in, in Winnipeg, but then got an opportunity to move up to the national level and um, 
the uh, they were just starting to breathe new life into a grassroots program called Run Jump Throw, and so very early in my career, I think I was. I maybe was 25 years old, was thrust into a national leadership role, which I probably wasn't ready for. But um, but someone else, I think the some of the leaders of that program and some of my uh, colleagues saw opportunity for me um, and uh, never let me drown, <laughs> but certainly put me in situations where I was forced to grow and forced to learn quickly. And uh, I was able to remain in that position with Athletics Canada's Run Jump Throw program for. Uh, the better part of a decade. And that was an incredible opportunity for me. Uh, I was also coaching at the same time. And so um, full-time paid coaching positions in Canada are pretty hard to come by. And um, so I was coaching um, first at the club level and then uh, at the national level with the university program while I was in a leadership role at Athletics Canada and working in coach development so that uh, my role expanded from run, jump, throw into leading the redevelopment of the entire coach education program and had the opportunity to work with some of the best coaches in Canada for sure and the world uh, in track and field and really learned a lot about um, culture and about performance um, and about work-life blend, what that does and does not look like. And as a young coach, uh, it was just a really incredible position to be in. So learned a lot from the people around me and I'm grateful uh, to have had that experience. That was a hell of an answer. <laughs> I had notes. I'm just going to jump off in your last point. When you're redeveloping a program, what what goes into that? Like that's a, there's just, as you said, you're, you're, you're thinking about culture, you're thinking about high, uh, you know, high performance elements, technical elements. What goes into the redevelopment of an entire national program? Uh, quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit, as you can imagine. Um, so the, it, the, a couple of things that was really helpful is that the redevelopment of the coach education program for Athletics Canada is rooted in the NCCP or the National Coaching Certification Program. So that program is operated by the Coaching Association of Canada. So there was guidelines and um, expectations set out for us. So the the boundaries of the program were defined for us and there was they created a lot of multi-sport materials that we could jump off from now athletics people being as we are <laughs> we generally like to think of ourselves as an island and the way that our sport works is that we don't have necessarily technical tactical like we just train right like it's a very fundamental sport and so um, we use a lot of the material but a lot of it we just thought no this is not how we roll and we're going to recreate our own um, and the other thing that's interesting about athletics um, is that it's really 10 sports in one. So you don't just have running, you have different event groups in running. And so while some of the foundation material is the same, a lot of the technical pieces are different. So you, it was... Um, what are those 10 sports? <laughs> sort of. Well, so you have sprints, middle distance, um, and then endurance. But in, within in, in distance, you have also steeplechase and the events on the track. And then you have off track, so cross country and marathon. Then you have jumps, so long jump, high jump, triple jump and pole vault. And then you have throws, so shot put, discus, javelin and hammer. Um, and then you have combined events, so heptathlon, decathlon. And so um, there's fundamentals that are the same for everyone. But then when you run a technical course at a higher level, you're introducing most of those events or all of those events or you're looking at them very specifically. So for example, at our high performance level or competition development, which is the workshop that a coach would 
be taking if they were um, coaching at Canada Games or starting to edge into the national team environment. The discussion around the 800 meters alone, it will differ if you're coaching a man or if you're coaching women because of the differences in the genders and the way they respond to training, but also in the actual length of the race because the men run faster than the women. So there's like, we can get very detailed <laughs> around how you look at that. And so the sprint um, at the competition development level, this, the specializations for the coaches was actually, you know, sprints. So up to 400 meters, then middle distance. So 800, um, and there's a bridge in the four, the 400, so 815, and then endurance um, and steeplechase is a separate discussion, depending on if a coach is working with athletes in that category. And the same would apply to all the technical events. So piloting it was quite the undertaking at times. Um, and the other way that you create a national program is you leverage the hell out of all the expert expertise and resources you have around you. So I... Uh, <laughs> I know a bit about sprints. I, I'm a sprint coach, but I've also like, I didn't write any of that content. My job was to facilitate the expertise and bring the very best out of them. They might argue that I wrestled it out of them at times. Um, and so it, it took a lot of, um, uh, it was a lot of collaboration and a lot of, uh, a lot of expertise that contributed. The writing teams were very big, uh, really big, because you needed. I needed experts from every event group area. Uh, and one of the things I learned, one of the the best experiences from that is having some of the best people um, in Canada and the world sitting around a table talking about periodization, for example. And my role there was just simply to facilitate and take notes. And so, uh, but the coaches in the room uh, had so much respect for each other. They could. It was awesome to watch them argue a point and, you know, argue about why their approach was right or what approach was right or why my approach works in throws and doesn't work in your approach in endurance is different. Um, and so learning a lot about professional respect and expertise and the way that you can disagree um, and still have tremendous respect for the person on the other side of the table. And so I just got to be a fly on the wall in those situations. I mean, I was arguably facilitating the entire process, but it wouldn't have been possible at all without the willingness of those coaches to contribute their expertise and their time to the project. Um, it was, and they, and they didn't have to, I'm still amazed that I'm, I'm, I said this before, but I'm, I'm still amazed that I was able to leverage them because as national team coaches, some of them were on contract with athletics Canada and some of them weren't. And it certainly wasn't in anyone's job description to be part of this project. And I didn't have a lot of, cash at all to pay them but um you know where there's a will there's a way and you figure it out and you again you leverage like hell and sometimes all it was was like i can get you your own hotel room so you don't have to share and i'll bring in really good food and that's all i can do like i you know and i'll give you a thousand dollar honorarium i mean some of these guys should have been making a thousand dollars a day <laughs> but um yeah so you you leverage the hell out of the situation for sure that's how you get that done one of the things i'm getting and i've and I, i've I've thought about this in the past and you've talked about this experience is that you really thought about who needs to be around the table and like to find any way to get them there. Cause it's really easy for like, and I'm just thinking based on sitting in our organizations, it's really easy to, to, to try to do it all ourselves, right? You've been put in this position. They've given you responsibility. You know, you know what, you know, a ton, you grew up in the sport, you've been around it at a national level. You know, you could easily look at, doing most of it yourself as opposed to absolutely drawing it out of the the best resources you could which is so cool 
in whatever capacity put the best best seats on the bus yes absolutely and I, I don't at the time i mean now you and i've read a lot of jim collins lately and we've you know talked about the importance or read about the importance of having the right people on your team and the right people on the bus and at the time i hadn't had exposure to any of that content but i think um I think early on, whether I knew it inherently or whether, or subconsciously, or whether I just, I don't know, remember having an awareness, but I definitely knew what I didn't know. And um, having been around some of those people who at the time when I came in, I remember um, coming in and my colleague Alec had said, hey, I need you to help me pick some people up at the airport. And I was like, okay, sure. And then, but I didn't know at the time. And I was really green. Like I was six months into Athletics Canada and Alec lived in Winnipeg and I lived in Winnipeg. And I remember standing in the old Winnipeg airport and the coming down the escalator and it's the 2004 Olympic coaching staff. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, like Alec, you didn't tell me this. And right. And I'm driving people around and I just remember thinking like Donna don't say anything stupid don't say and don't get lost like don't get stu don't right I was like terrified and um because these guys were like the icons right like this is and I'm you know six months in and who the hell am I and I think so early on I think exposure to people like that and being around them just made me acutely aware of what I didn't know and fit and then I just figured out ways to leverage it and uh, figured out ways to, you know, engage those individuals. And I think, no, I think also too, like knowing um, that the, the future of our sport really is, this is a biased opinion, but the future of our sport and our future success is really predicated on the quality of our coach education and our ability to provide foundational knowledge to our coaches. And so my goodness, I, I wouldn't have wanted that to be founded on Donna's view of the universe by any means. I, I um, we definitely um, needed to have those people around the table. So Donna, your thesis, uh, which we've done a, we've done a lot of work around some of the findings mm -hmm. that came out of it was called passion in the expert coach impact on life and performance. Mm -hmm. We talked about that study in the last episode as it related to some lessons that we can learn as we were all going through the pandemic. At the time you had two kids, I believe when you started that. Uh, one, I, one, I, I was expecting one and I had one. <laughs> so you had one kid, one on the way, you had a, a very senior role in sport at the time and then went in and did a, a master's thesis. What, why the hell did you do that? That's a good question uh, on several fronts. So, um, so there's a bit of a story, a bit of a story there. So two, two uh, contributing factors. So at the time, I was the director of coach development with Athletics Canada, and I was so I was responsible for um, all of our coach education. And we had started to do some work on, on um, the high performance piece of coach education, and we never quite got there, but. Uh, um, the competition development course I talked about earlier was really the bridge between um, the national level and the international level. And then the high performance is really about podium performances and supporting international uh, performances um, at the senior level. So, you know, Olympics, World Championships, Commonwealth Games, that level of competition. And um, and related to that, Own the Podium at the time had, had started with a couple of sports to work on a coach succession program to identify an effective way that we could create a succession 
plaid or a pool of coaches, a pipeline, so to speak, of who's going to be the next generation of coaches at the high performance level. And this is still something that we struggle with a little bit in sport. I don't know that we really know how to do that. And um, now that I've done the research, I can tell you that I would say most coaches don't plan on being coaches. So first of all, it's hard to create a pipeline for a profession that no one ever intends to end up in. Like, and, and they sort of end up in there by happenstance. And it's amazing how many times I've talked to coaches since I've done the research and that that part of that coach pathway is validated over and over again all the time. Like they end up in it unknowingly. Um, and so it was really difficult to create a succession plan. What a great analogy to you know, leadership across the board, right? There's yeah. so there's so many of us that end up in a in a position of leadership at where you but you'd started you know in an area of, of competence. You know, you were working in yeah. some area and then you ended up in a position of leader. Like it's um I think everyone can really relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why succession planning is so difficult because it's hard to say 10 years out, we're gonna identify you as the next leader because First of all, you don't know what's going to happen with the organization, but also you don't know what's going to happen with that human, right? If they want to stay in that profession, if they don't, if they find something else that they want to do, if their family life changes, like, I mean, life is life, right? And so there's, it's really difficult to anticipate um, for anyone. And we found it especially difficult in coaching. And the other piece that was really interesting around the coaching piece is that we, we started by uh, doing this questionnaire or this sort of interview process with the coaches who were, would have been sort of in that next gen, that's what we call like the coaches who are, you know, maybe coaching at the national level or working with junior national teams. And we see them as the having the potential to step into a national senior role someday. Uh, so we started to do, uh, started to question them and ask them about, you know, succession planning and where they wanted to be. And, um, and I myself, so I had been named to a national team internally, it was never made public. And I made the decision to walk away for, for a number of, of reasons. And, um, and one of them was just because I could see how hard that life was. And I knew that I, we I had just gotten married and we wanted to have a family. And I just didn't think that I'd be able to take on that role and be the type of partner that I needed to be for me and the type of mom that I needed to be for me as a, as a mom. Um, and so I walked away and um, I, I, so I started to wonder like how many others are there like me? And I'm not suggesting I would have been the next head coach by any means, but, but uh, I was a chartered professional coach. I was certified at a high level and, and, you know, and I've let, I left, I walked away, I left the system as a coach, but we also heard, that there were several coaches who are around my age or a little bit older that said, I will continue to engage as a volunteer, but I'm not taking the step into that senior national role. Uh, there's a lot of carnage there. I, I don't want to do that. Or people who said, I'm going to do it, but I'm really scared. I'm really scared. I'm going to lose my life. I'm really scared. Like my life, not like as in life and death, but my life in terms of my ability to effectively blend the human I am with the coach that I want to be and serve the national program in that way. And so we, I started to recognize that maybe my concerns weren't only my concerns. And so I started to, you know, ask questions and suggest that maybe we weren't doing this the right way. And a senior person at OTP who's now left the organization, but at the time said, sort of patted me on the head and said, Oh, you should do a lit review, which is basically a nice way of telling me to just go away. Um, you know, but you know what, you're never going to change anything anyway. And that just lit a fire in my belly. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. So basically <laughs> I did a master's degree with a 
18 month old child and six months pregnant with another in the middle of building a house and moving under crazy circumstances because I wanted to prove that I was right. I wanted to prove that there was a different way that we could support coaches and I wanted to prove that there was a problem in the system. Um, and the system has since changed. There's this amazing program that Own the Ponium operates called the Coach Enhancement Program. That's a partnership between the five big funders of sport in Canada, and they're doing tremendous work, tremendous work to support coaches in this country. And I have the privilege of being a presenter in part of in that program. And they've done an incredible job of, but at the, at the time that I did the research, none of that existed. And so, um, so I, I did the research to look at what the basically passion and the expert coach impact on life and performance is about the impact of being a high performance coach has on your ability to do your job as a high performance coach, but also on the rest of your life. And so I interviewed 10 coaches who were preparing athletes for the Olympics and Paralympics. I, I collected my data in 2016 before the Rio Summer Olympics and I interviewed their partner and it painted a very interesting picture of um, what the elite performance environment is all about from the perspective of a of a human who's leading athletes through that and the demands of that. And there's definitely parallels to that environment, to any environment where we want to be at our best and perform to the best of our abilities, for sure. So we we did speak to the 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 concept of of life load and mm-hmm. um, and 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 self care in in the last episode that we recorded. But I, I, I guess can you can you tie back the some of the lessons that obviously you drew out of that study that you know have filtered into the into the work that you do both in some of the uh, some of the facilitation in sport but also you know now in out of sport in the business community and um, um, and elsewhere yeah absolutely uh, there's lots of lessons uh, as you can imagine with 20 participants in a qualitative study there's a, a hell of a lot of data <laughs> to look at but I think the parallels and the, the elements the takeaways that are relevant to to not just sport, to any environment certainly are, uh, one is around the importance of culture and how the underlying culture of an organization can really help an organization thrive and the people in it thrive, or you're in a situation where the culture is terrible and the people are thriving and not thriving, but they're having success despite the culture that they're in. And um, so that's one of the huge takeaways for sure. In terms of culture, like, are, are there some particulars that that stood out for you in the qualitative research? Yeah, absolutely. I, and it all comes down to relationships and the way that people are treated. I think is what I took away from the coach from the coach research. And so, uh, and this doesn't apply to all coaches by any means or every sport environment. But certainly, some of the participants in the research spoke of um, environments where. Uh, they were managed by fear. So I had one coach who was prepared, it was coaching a team that was expected to medal at the Olympics or Paralympics. Uh, and their um, high performance director was threatening to take their job away if they didn't medal. And so this person was preparing a team for the highest level of competition in the world um, as a team topped uh, that ranked top five in the world and um, was also at the same time working on uh, their real estate license in case they lost their job. So they're not able to focus t- entirely on what they were doing. And um, that's the most extreme example. But another coach talked about, you know, how um, they didn't feel valued. They didn't feel valued as a coach. And so 
they did produce a medal, but they didn't produce a medal because they came from an environment that really supported them as a holistic person and didn't in an environment where they were really able to thrive. The environment was actually toxic and they did everything they could in their power and sort of sometimes you see that coaches and athletes will sort of insulate themselves. But can you imagine what we'd be able to achieve if that insulation didn't happen and if there was more of a fluid uh, environment where people are valued and they're supported. And um, and I, I know from experience that you can have an environment where you support people where they are and you um, recognize what they need holistically, but you also hold them to very high standards of performance. And so I've seen that in coaching environments and I've uh, you know lived that way as a human myself, right? I have super high expectations of the people around me, but I'm certainly never going to slam the door or walk away from someone who needs help or who is in pain or who's just having a super bad day. I think you can meet people where they are as human beings and hold them to a high standard. And that doesn't always happen in environments. I think culture sometimes can be, you can have a leader who manages by fear. You can have a leader who just simply doesn't value people for the job that they're doing. Um, and you can have a leader who doesn't see people outside of the one dimension of how they serve the organization. And so I think sometimes with coaches and I mean, this would happen with leaders and anybody else too, but I'll just speak, you know, use coach as the example here. Um, you see them as a one-dimensional human. You're, you know, on your field of play and you're working with the athletes and you fail to recognize that they have a partner and they have, or they have children or they have an elderly parent they're caring for, or, you know, they have friends and family. And so when we fail to rec recognize the multidimensionality of humans and we don't wrap that into our culture, then I think we're compromising the performance of everyone in the organization and the organization itself. Mm. Great answer. And I, I know that you were speaking to a couple points. I, 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 I held you at culture. Were there a few other uh, key pieces that came out? Sure. I think that one was sort of all encompassing, but definitely, definitely we learned a lot about life load and you've alluded to, we talked about that on the podcast we did just at the front end of the pandemic, but understanding that we all carry a load and that that load needs to undulate and just recognizing how important recovery is. And I keep saying this over and over, recovery doesn't mean a vacation. Recovery is just the ability for us to practice self-care, even in really micro amounts. And so we talk sometimes about, you know, if you can take 15 minutes a day for a meditation or a walk or a just outside, um, you know, that equals cumulatively, it's like over a, a hundred minutes in a week. And, and if you do that over a year, it's like 84 hours, which someone pointed out to me the other day is equivalent to two weeks of holidays. And so you can break your two weeks of holidays, not, you should still take your two weeks of holidays, but you can break up that kind of recovery into small chunks and give yourselves little bits of recovery a day. And that can make a huge difference. And we learned a lot about what happens when we don't recover um, and how how deep burnout can be. Um, we had someone talk about, um, you know, producing a medal in 2012 and then stepping away from sport in 2015 because their over time their performance and their ability to make good decisions just um, spiraled in a negative way because they were just so under recovered and it took a long time to get better, like a long time to come back from that. So certainly the life load piece. Uh, and then I spoke to the recognizing humanity, recognizing the human in all of us and, and really valuing what people bring and valuing the people who are part of your organization. And 
certainly there are valuable people everywhere. Uh, everyone brings something important to the table, but uh, in particular for me, and I'm biased because coaches hold a special place in my heart, but you think about someone in a coaching realm who's capable of putting an athlete on the podium or in the top eight in the world over and over again. I mean, that is a very, very specialized skill set. And so, you know, when you have people in your organization with specialized skill sets or who can do incredible things, regardless of whether you're, you know, in finance or you're a human resources company or, or you know, you're, you're in sales, it doesn't matter. But when you have those people, you need to protect them and you need to make sure you're supporting them in lots of, in ways that make sure, you know, sure that they're valued and that they're allowed to recover and, you know, do what they need to do to be able to serve the organization well over time. Um, and then also just the role of our personal lives and our success. And the, the coaches talked about how we talked about one of the takeaways specific to sport was what do coaches need to perform at their best. And it, it's not a question that we really understand even now um, very well. And the, one of the interesting takeaways was how important their families were, how important that home base was. And family can mean a number of things. I mean, it can be you know, the traditional nuclear family of your partner and children, or it can just could be your close friends. It can be just a partner. Like it, it, family is whatever you decide it is, right? And whatever that foundation is for you, but how important those foundations were. And yet those foundational pieces that are so important to the performance of the coach are relatively invisible to the national sport organization and to the people working with coaches. So again, that goes back to culture and that concept of you need to be able to see people from a multi-dimensional perspective and understand that they're more than just, you know, the accountant that shows up at your office to do your books or the coach that shows up or, you know, like the, the salesperson that's out in the field, like there's many pieces to each person. And so the, uh, if we're able to recognize that, it, I think it allows us to have more compassion um, and it, and it leads to questions so that we know the people that we work with better than just, oh yeah, you're the bookkeeping guy or, you know, that sort of thing. You couldn't sort of explain the work that we're, uh, that, that you're leading uh, here with the human assignment any better. Um, and we have all sorts of initiatives and, you know, ideas and, and sort of the, you know, things, things in the works that, uh, uh, that, you know, that you're spearheading to bring forward uh, right now, but uh, you know, that we look forward to sharing in the future, but, mm -hmm. uh, but that all encompassing idea of, uh, what happens at work is what people bring home and what happens at home comes this to work is sort of the, the, the theme of what we're doing here. And, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, so embracing the good, the bad, the ugly, the mess as we call it, our humanness, mm -hmm. while also holding each other and ourselves to, to a high standard. You know, we always talk about this, this, what one can be, one must be sort of idea. One of the projects that I'm really excited about is something that you've had in the works for many years called <laughs> Does This Shit Happen at Your House? And we've released a couple uh, blogs. You you, you, you uh, shared some to the, the team at Johnston Group in, in the late fall as, uh, you know, as, uh, as a test and um, we're starting to put them out. But where did this concept of Does This Shit Happen at Your House come from? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm excited about this project too. Um, so I think it's uh, so strange things always seem to happen to me, like random, random, funny things throughout uh, my life. I, I was sort of talking to my parents about this project uh, a couple of weeks ago, and then we were calling a bunch of funny stories and um, just ridiculous things that happened. And, and some of those, sometimes those are things that we share openly, and sometimes we pretend that they don't happen, and we're sort of mortified that... Um, 
that we've had some of these experiences. And so early in my career, I was, as I mentioned earlier, when we talked about it, I was fairly young in a leadership role at a, at a high level. And I was also coaching at a high level. And I, I didn't always, I wasn't always open about maybe some of the, um, you know, experiences I was having or worries I was having. And, and sometimes that really, uh, didn't, uh, farewell for me. Um, I, uh, it was just a lot of work to sort of pretend, oh yeah, I'm good. And I have all my stuff together and I'm totally with it when really, you know, maybe I was absolutely not, uh, holding my stuff together. And I was, I had some pretty big challenges on the personal side of my life and I told no one and they weren't always funny, but there was funny elements to it. And I think I learned that that human connection is really important and it's a really important way of um, managing stress and it's a really important way of uh, being real and when we're able to be real and authentic it's a lot less exhausting and we find that it's a lot more connecting um, and it's a really interesting way to combat isolation and so uh, in my recent years I turned 40 a couple of years ago and you know 40 is always a, a milestone birthday as they say and I think I've just got to the point where I'm just owning my chaos and being honest about it and it's actually a much less exhausting way to live um, but I've also found that when I'm able to be honest about it then I don't have to pretend that, you know, I have all my, pardon my language, I don't have all my shit together and, and that's okay. I can still be a really high performer with a whole bunch of chaos running in the background. Um, and this started to come to life when actually my kids entered daycare in this house where I am right now, my, one of my, now my, one of my very closest friends. And um, I would, you know, say we started to have these texts going back and forth, like, oh my God, because I shared this idea of, oh, I should have this blog, this should happen at your house. And then she said, oh, I could contribute too. And at the time her daughter was battling a chronic illness and they had ridiculous things happen at their house all the time. And so we started to have this joke about, uh, hey, I have a blog post for you. Here's the shit that happened at our house today. And it would just go back and forth. And so then I started to think, well, you know, maybe this would be fun to share, like maybe anonymously, this would be a great way to connect us together and so then when I started to you know collaborate Matt you and I started to collaborate and we um, realized that during the pandemic maybe there was a way to to bring it to life um, so I think it's all about you know recognizing we're all human and that there's chaos in that humanity but just because there's chaos and stuff happens to us doesn't mean that we're not competent doesn't mean that we're not high performers it just means that we're human. And, and when we're honest about that, it actually fuels connection. Um, and let's be honest, it's way more fun to laugh at someone else um, than it is to like, it helps you own your own stuff better when you're like, well, I had a shitty day, but at least I'm not that guy. Right. So that's where it comes from. I do love the concept. And um, uh, for me, the, the, the tool with, uh, with, you know, the, the project around is this shit happening at your house is it's a, it's a, it's an entryway into, into some challenging conversations. Mm -hmm. Donna, why don't you read our sort of flagship? Does this shit happen at your house? Because it's, it's very accessible. It doesn't dig deep into the hard stuff yet, but it really, uh, it really does a good job of, of framing, um, uh, painting a picture, if you will, around <laughs> what we're trying to create with, um, with this project and in general uh, with the work that we're doing at The Human Assignment. For sure. This is our, uh, our flagship or our premier, does this should happen at your house post, and it's called uh, Picture Day. 
So all of our Dish It At Your House have three components, the, the laugh, uh, the lesson, and the iteration. So this is the laugh. A picture is worth a thousand words, or so they say. Recent family photos have my family appearing coordinated, well put together, and happy. Now, we are happy, but the story not told by the photo is that on any given day, there is chaos brewing or raging at my house. And family photo day was absolutely no exception. I wonder if your house is the same. I'm taking a not so giant leap here and assuming that your answer is yes. And that's what this blog is all about. The shit that happens not only at my house, but at everyone else's house too. The bedlam, the mistakes, the sides of our lives that are less than shiny and far from perfect. The stuff we sometimes work hard at covering up or masking from others. However, it is these moments of raw humanity, of pure humanness, that I think have the potential to connect us and make us laugh at ourselves and each other. So below, I share the staged family photos that we present to the world that make it appear as though we have our shit together and the real story that demonstrates the photo is far from the truth. So we had family photos taken as Christmas gifts for the girls' grandparents. Our kids are age seven and nine. Three hours before, I had no idea what we were wearing. Two hours before, we decided to wear sweaters and toques, so we were digging through winter clothing bins trying to find coordinated toques and mittens. 90 minutes before, we realized that one of the child's white sweaters was dirty, so I threw it in the wash. 60 minutes before, the eldest child starts complaining that this is stupid. We read the kids the riot act, talked about the gifts the photos represent, then bribed them with the promise of hot chocolate, popcorn, and a movie if they are polite and smile properly. 45 minutes before, our youngest child is screaming and crying as I brush her hair in an attempt to have it look moderately tidy. I did some yelling here too. It was not a proud moment. 30 minutes before, I realized that the oldest child's sweater is still in the wash, not in the dryer. I put it in the dryer on high, praying that A, that it dried in time, and B, that it doesn't shrink. 15 minutes before, I get myself dressed and the photographer arrives. We go outside to take photos and we walk to the end of our driveway. But the dog runs through the wireless fence as she tries to follow us and gets shocked. So she's now super freaked out and the session is delayed as we return her to our yard uh, and then comfort the both the dog and our children. The photo shoot proceeds and we got some very lovely photos. We look like a coordinated, well put together family, but in truth, we are like a cat in the air. You know it will stick the landing and always land on its feet, but as you watch it fall, you're sure it is never going to make it. So the lesson here is that our imperfections build character. Uh, this is celebrated in the Japanese art, a form called kintsugi, which celebrates the flaws of a piece of pottery by, by uh, fixing it with golden and silver lacquer. So it looks more beautiful as a broken piece of art than it did as its original form. And the iteration here is how to make it better next time. <laughs> you can Google stress-free photos for advice on preparing your family members for a photo shoot. Uh, no guarantees that that's going to work though. Uh, you can pick out your outfits and location ahead of time um, and determine the photos you want to capture. That may help, uh, but just really remember to have fun. So that is uh, our first iteration of does this shit happen at your house? Well, I just, I, I, I love that. It's uh, it's such a, it's, it's a hilarious story that we can all relate to, you know, it's, uh, and certainly speaks to the, um, the, the social media culture that we have where we post our filtered best. Um, but you know, none of us know what's, what's really happening on the back end. Um, <laughs> and I just love the analogy of the, the cat in the air 
that uh, you you know you you know they're going to stick the landing, but God, it's it it seems you know impossible as they're they're in the air. And I just uh, you know what a great um, uh, we, we talk about that all the time uh, through the through the lens of the Stockdale paradox. You know where uh, uh, you know Jim Collins quote that we uh, we we always lean into where you know it's going to be really really hard um, and. Uh, uh, and you're not quite sure when you will, but you will get there. Um, so I love it, Donna. Thanks so much for, um, uh, for, for joining, uh, me, uh, on the, on the show. Uh, but, uh, but all your work on this project, I'm really excited by, uh, by what we're doing, by what you're doing. Uh, but this should happen to your, uh, does this should happen to your house? We're so fired up that we can bring that to the world. Um, and, uh, we have a lot more in store. So, uh, Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and letting me uh, sh- shine the spotlight on you before we uh, together uh, uh, put everyone else in the uh, in the hot seat. Oh, thank you! It's I'm so excited to be here. It's awesome. As uh, as I always say, to be continued. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>